electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer America. I do want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If everybody tries to get out of everything ahead of everyone else, then at what point is everybody gone? Well, that was the theme of our investment club call at noon today. It's what I saw all day, with the Dow ultimately slipping 164 points, S&P declining 1.15%, and the Nasdaq tumbling 2.26%. We are seeing a circus of downgrades and large price target cuts as the analysts try to get ahead of each other, downgrading and cutting price targets, regardless of how low these stocks have gone already. It's abundantly clear that right now it feels like no price is safe enough to buy. None. Nothing can get too low. Doesn't matter if the stock's already down 50%, 60%, 70%, or more from its high, as so many are, because the bears will tell you they never should have been up that much in the first place. Doesn't matter if those stocks are selling at four or five times earnings, because the bears will tell us they'll never be able to meet the estimates anyway. The real numbers will be much lower. Nothing seems to matter except getting out ahead of the other guy which is a little funny when you remember we've been in a bear market for seven months. And when it comes to technology, the worst area, don't even ask. This group gets nonstop hate every single day. It is just despised. With much of it aimed at the semiconductor and Internet stocks that I think have been hard hit, maybe too hard hit, even as the companies may or may not be doing well, although you can bet that the strong dollar is crushing all of them overseas. Remember, I think we're going to be able to asterisk that, that people are going to ignore that, but that is crucial. Make no mistake, the bears have seized control of the radio station, and that's their narrative. But it's not how I think. To me, this mad scramble to get out ahead of the negativity is a sign that the bad news, with the exception of the dollar, is mostly baked in. I actually feel a lot more constructive. That's the word I chose to go into tonight. Constructive about this market than I did a month or two ago. I bet there could easily come a day where we even get 
slower consumer data, and the Federal Reserve realizes they don't need to raise interest rates as aggressively as they previously thought. Once that happens, this whole process will be reversed. You'll see the analysts panicking in the other direction, raising price targets, upgrading stocks, as they recognize that the sellers have dried up and the buyers suddenly went in. They went in because they were just waiting for a sign that the Fed would take its foot off the, uh, off the brakes. And that will happen, people. It will happen. I'm not saying it'll happen immediately. But given the collapse in commodity prices and a glut of many goods and even a looming excess in homes because of newfound deal cancellations, it's much easier to believe the Fed can beat inflation without wrecking the whole economy. But we're stuck with the fear for the time being, which is why I want to go over the game plan for this week so you know exactly what people are so scared of because it is staring right in front. Now, it starts with macro numbers. I'm not going to start with the, stock, with the companies. The macro numbers, all right? And it's really important that people recognize that we're, we're going to get on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday is the consumer price index, the producer price index, and the retail sales numbers. I think those figures will be too hot and will be more important than any of these companies. Uh, there's just too much inflation. But I also expect some early signs of cooling, especially retail sales, as consumers are already starting to run out of money that they saved during the depths of the pandemic. Now, that's something that Craig Jelinek of the CEO of Costco kind of suggested this morning on Squawk on the Street, although he added it, it might just be because the consumer has everything she needs, which is also bad for retail, although not for Costco, which crushed the numbers. In general, though, these data points are what everyone's afraid of. And when everyone's petrified, it tends to be a non-story with buyers coming in after the big bad event passes. But it's those CPI, PPI, and retail that have caused so much of the selling today other than the downgrades and the price cuts. How about individual companies? All right, tomorrow people will be dissecting PepsiCo, which reports in the morning. I have a lot of confidence in these guys, and I think they can tell a very good story. Now that so many of their input costs have come down huge from their highs, especially corn and aluminum. We heard a great story from Coca-Cola recently, and I think that Pepsi can tell a similar one when it comes to carbonated drinks, and maybe even a great one when it comes to snacking at home with Frito-Lay, provided the transportation costs are under control, and we don't have to hear too much about fuel. Wednesday, we hear from Delta Airlines, and I think the consumer still, it, it still isn't done traveling. So that's the thing. Maybe done and may have everything they need at home, but they're not done traveling. We just saved so much money and missed out on so much travel during the worst of the pandemic, so now all the planes are filled. In fact, if Delta says things aren't good, that would be a true revelation. Thursday, the, bears begin, uh, the banks begin reporting. It's, actually, that's a nice 40 and slip because the bears are reporting. The banks begin reporting. We're all getting used to these stocks getting crushed after they report. But what if they're so far down this time that there's nowhere left to go but up? Remember, the banks instantly become more profitable every time the Fed raises interest rates. And by the way, that's because they can invest at a higher rate than they'll pay you. Your rate at your checking account is not going to go up that much. I think the more this happens, it offsets any damage that could cause by a potential, because there isn't yet, a potential increase in bad loans. It's amazing to me that when their net interest margins were much lower, the bank stocks were much higher. Now that their net interest margins are high and the stocks are low, yet they're still hated, that makes no sense to me. It, it, it could produce some spectacular results. That's why I like Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan ahead of their quarters. Granted, their trading business lines have been very weak, and that is a good reason to sell, but not enough. Everybody knows it already. 
According to the St. Louis Fed, the one with the best information, loans were still strong this quarter. That if that's that is as of Friday. I think the bank stocks, which have been a frigid wasteland, could become a hot place to put your money. They usually work at this point in the business cycle. I particularly like Morgan Stanley because the franchise is too cheap and they give you a good dividend. So if it if I'm wrong, it will still not go down that much. That may be the best one to be in. Also on Thursday, we get results from ConAgra, the packaged food company. Now, I see this as a decent situation. ConAgra has a lot of good brands that are just getting better, not to mention it's 3.5% yield. The value proposition is pretty compelling here, especially thanks to working from, from home. Remember, there's a lot of snacking. That's something that I said would help Frito-Lay. Then there's Cintas. Now, this is a company that supplies uniforms and provides other services for small, medium-sized businesses. I used to love it when it merged with its largest competitor. These days, I just listen to the conference call. Get a check on the pace of job creation, as I am no, not sure we'll have any acceleration right now because of what it's become of this kind of nationwide gloom. I mean, we talked about that with Marty Musi. Remember that from Paychex? They still have good business formation, but there's some concern that things are, uh, let's, yeah, they're gloomy. Friday, another bank day. And we start with Wells Fargo. Now, this stock sold off hard after failing to grow much last quarter and higher expenses. I was infuriated by that. The company tells me that, look, there's some real regulatory issues they're still working through. We own Wells for the charitable trust, and we cannot believe it's gotten so low. But this is a bank that is under a lot of federal pressure to do what is right, much more pressure than I thought they would have at this point since Charlie Scharf, the CEO, took over. Okay. at this price, though, I think there is little to lose with Wells Fargo and a lot more to gain. Then there's Citigroup. Citi is a total conundrum, people. Its book value is much higher than its stock price, yet that means nothing to prospective buyers. Nothing at all. Lots of people ask me, how can I not want to endorse this one, given that it's just ridiculously cheap on book? But until I see some actual earnings momentum, I'm not going to go positive. There are better banks don't. We also get results from BlackRock, which I like very much here. I couldn't believe when I saw some negative analyst chatter about this great company ahead of the quarter. I think BlackRock's a terrific core holding that rarely comes in because its CEO, Larry Fink, has a clearly defined vision of what his firm should do. And by the way, he is a technology fiend. They have the best fintech. Finally, there's United Health, a fantastic, consistent health insurance organization that should have a very good quarter, particularly because COVID is now not as threatening to the public as flu in terms of fatality and length of time in the hospital. The business does have some cyclicality. If there are a lot of layoffs, its numbers can weaken. But we're not seeing that yet. Otherwise, you've got my blessing to just keep buying. That said, we preferred Humana for the Chapel Trust. Said that today on our conference call. It's much, much cheaper than United Health. Although lately, we've been scaling out of it simply because it's had such a giant run. Bottom line, everybody's scrambling to get out of this market ahead of everybody else. But at this point, I think many people who are going to sell have already gone which means we could get some pleasant surprise going forward. Let's go to Ann in Indiana. Ann. Jim, thanks for taking my call. Oh, of course. Thank you for calling. Yeah, I'm a club member. I love the call today. But I wanted to dig a little deeper into Eli Lilly. I have a two-part question. Mm -hmm. One, do you feel concerned if the P.E. gets higher? And two, in addition to holding the stock long, I have been learning to buy some options from your book, Getting Back to Even. Thank you. So I have some deep-in-the-money calls. And this sounds retarded, but I swear I could have gone out even further for the same amount of money. And I'm like, oh, I guess I should have done that. 
Uh, that does happen, yes. I always tell you to go out further because they're surprisingly a bargain versus the near term. But don't feel t- tough on yourself. What you're doing is right. Now, the reason why Lilly seems cheap to me is because I am looking at some of the remarkable things in their pipeline. They've got four, five, six, seven billion dollar drugs that you're just beginning to hear about. And that makes it so the E, the estimated E or earnings are probably going to be lower than uh, the, the, the P.E. is going to be lower because the estimates are going to have to move up dramatically. And that's what I think is going to happen. So it's not nearly as expensive as it looks right now. It seems like everyone's scrambling to get out of this market ahead of everybody else, doesn't it? But I think most people who are going to sell have already done so. So we could get some positive surprises going forward if we just get numbers that are okay. On May Money tonight, ServiceNow is its finger on the pulse of thousands of companies. So I'm sitting down with the company's top brass to get a read on the health of the enterprise spending in this environment. And, of course, the strong dollar, which is very, very, very uh, disconcerting to a lot of companies. Oh, and then how about, how about who's buying and who's selling? The commercial hedgers are bullish, while the public's gotten very bearish. Who's right? I'm going off the charts with the help of Larry Williams to find out. And a few months ago, Chipotle introduced us to their chip-making robot, known as Chippy. And tonight, I'm talking to privately held Miso Robotics to see how they're, equi- uh, they're equipping some high-profile businesses with the robots they need to improve their operations and to cut their costs. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Tech was obliterated today, but did you know that many of the hardest hit groups actually bottomed in May? 
That includes the cloud-based software stocks. When the broader averages put in new lows last month, the cloud stocks did a much better job of holding up. However, if you want to go bottom fishing here, you've got to stick with the highest quality names, although even some of those aren't holding up, where you can justify coming in because their stocks have gotten cheaper as they get lower. Take ServiceNow, the cloud-based software company that helps businesses automate all sorts of information, technology processes, and back office jobs. In less than two months, this stock has gone from 406 to 490, although it's still down more than 200 bucks from its peak. More important, business is good, and these guys are actually profitable. We're not going to talk about the quarter, though, because it's in what we call a quiet period. But we wanted to check in with Bill McDermott, the president CEO of ServiceNow, to get a better sense of how the industry and actually, frankly, all industries are doing. Mr. McDermott, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you for having me, Jim. Good to be back. Hey, Bill, you know, you and I got to talking in San Francisco. And a lot of times, of course, we talk about the companies, uh, your company. But sometimes we just talk about the tone of business. You talk to more people than pretty much anybody I've ever met. Are people, are the business people in tech as bearish as the analysts and the stock traders are about their business? I certainly don't think so, Jim. I think the, uh, the mood in, uh, in the headlines is a little bit worse than the reality. If you look at tech, automation is front and center. If you have a business and you want to grow it or you want to run it more efficiently or you want to differentiate your brand, you're going to have to compete with tech. So automation is alive and well, and I think the prospects for technology companies, especially ones with very strong brands and architectures, they'll do very well. There is a mistaken judgment being made, Bill, by people who have not been in the business as long as you have, and I have, which is that tech stocks have to go down if the economy, if uh, the Fed wants to punish the markets, slow down the economy. In reality, you bring in tech when you're being hurt by the economy. Tech is what makes it so you can still have good profits. What happened to that thesis that's being ignored by these young portfolio managers? Yeah, it's true. I mean, I see some of the more seasoned ones saying move away from energy and commodities a little more towards tech since now the uh, multiples have been, you know, really, really brought into a, a very attractive range. But the bottom line is this. If you look at the world through the CEOs out there, they have to deliver great experiences for their customers. They have to make their employees happy and all the relational issues, not just bonuses, but people care a lot about cultures now. And you can't build a great culture without serving your employees in moments that matter. And ultimately, you have to innovate. You have to do it on the fly. So tech is going to be front and center through all of this. But, Jim, I think one of the things that's going on out there is these macro crosswinds are blowing strong. You know, you're at 41-year high inflation. The dollar right now is the highest it's been in over two decades. We have interest rates rising. People are worried about security. you got a war in Europe. So the mood is not great. But there's no way out except to innovate and drive technology in your company so you digitize your processes, you move faster, and you ultimately win. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Bill, you're describing a counter-cyclical situation. You're describing something that comes in and makes it so you can better handle what the Fed is doing. So it's not the first. You don't 
cancel ServiceNow or Salesforce.com or your old guys SAP or Oracle or any of the companies we deal with. And I know some of those are competitors, but I did that because if you can't afford to rip them out, you have to put more money toward them in order to be able to, to take advantage of the situation. That's totally true. And if you look at the hyperscaler clouds out there today on the infrastructure side, they're all doing very, very well. The well-known brands that you mentioned, they're going to be around. They're not going anywhere. But there is one serious change that's going out there right now, and that is there's a new level of prioritization in the enterprise. And I have seen this actually since we last met, Jim, hitting a new gear where companies are first saying, which platforms do we want to bet on? And then how do we stack rank the priorities? Because they're capacity constrained, so they choose the projects that they want to go after. But there's one filter on all of this now, and that is fast return on investment. And if you can't put an architecture in there that gives the customer a fast ROI, chances are you're going to get postponed or move to the left side of the list as opposed to the right side you want to be on. All right, so Bill, then uh, let's let's go full circle here. Are this we established that CEOs CEOs aren't as necessarily as gloomy as Wall Street, but one of the things I think that is true is the CEOs are having a hard time working with government. I think the CEOs are a little more progressive, more can do. Government, I'm not talking Democrat or Republican, I'm talking both. That government seems to be more of a stumbling block toward growth than this than than the corporations. Am I too pro-corporate in that way of thinking? Well, I think you're onto something here. I mean, the crosswinds that are blowing are strong enough that it's probably moving people off their mark a little bit. And it's now time to reprioritize what really matters. And you can't be swayed by the news and the headlines of every single day. Get back to basics. So what are customers that I talk to thinking? Hey, they're thinking about how do I build a great business? Right. And government, government has to run like a best-run business. How do you serve the citizens? Well, you know what? I mean, I, see, I think you really nailed it. I think there are a lot of business people who want to keep their head down. They don't want to assert themselves. They're afraid. They're, they're doing everything they can to stay out of the, the news headlines. They devote more time toward that than they do making the calls that they need to get the business done. Exactly. You know, Jim, you talk to a healthcare provider, they have to care about their patients. You talk to a retailer, they have to think about direct to consumer or they coming in my store, how do I serve them? You talk about B2B. I mean, the B2B world, if you read any of the research reports, the enterprise businesses are very strong. Of course, you're going to see the headwind of the dollar right now against well-known technology brands. You've seen that, Jim. No one's going to outrun the currency right now. And probably when you think about energy and the dislocation caused by the war in Europe and this reprioritization I'm talking about, you're going to see longer cycles in Europe. We saw that. Right. But this doesn't fundamentally change the narrative that tech is the only way to cut through the crosswinds and ultimately get to the other side. Oh, thank you for saying that. I mean, I've just been beating the drum that this is countercyclical. It's the right time. I felt like to have you on would be great since I felt very alone. Bill McDermott, thank you so much for coming <laughs> back on the show. Really good to see you. Thank you. Thank Me- you, Jim. Remember, we had Bill on to give you the, the temperature of things. You know I like ServiceNow, the stock, but I just think the idea 
that technology is somehow superfluous right now is completely wrong. Bill McDermott, ServiceNow, President and CEO. Mad Money's back after the Coming up, today's chartist is a master of a key metric that could make you money. Stick around. Kramer is tackling the technicals next. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need indeed. How do we get a read on this crazy emotional market? For ages, we've been stuck in a house of pain, terrified of rampant inflation that could cause the Federal Reserve to throw us into a recession, to say nothing of the war in Ukraine, COVID lockdowns in China. This has been a miserable year for stocks, and we're still getting, got lots of very legitimate concerns about the direction of the broader economy. But a little over three weeks ago, this market seemed to find a floor, and many of the things we've been afraid of have started moving in the opposite direction. Commodity prices, right? They've collapsed from their highs, suggesting that we made more progress on the inflation front than many people seem to want to believe. Bond yields have also come down substantially. No one wants to believe that at all, but it's true. It's a sign that the Fed might not have to raise interest rates as rapidly as we were expecting. Happened again today. China's starting to go back to normal, even if that process is a lot less linear than we prefer. One step forward, half step back. Let me put it to you this way. Not that long ago, this market was trading as though a recession was inevitable. Although we bounced a little from these levels, I think the averages still reflect a pretty hard landing and, and much softer earnings than expected. The doom and gloom remain pervasive. Wall Street's totally shell-shocked from the last seven months of being torn to pieces. Yet from a fundamental perspective, we're still in much better shape than we were a month or two ago, except for, for the companies that are really hurt by the strong dollar. So how do we reconcile these two competing visions of the stock market? Tonight, we're going off the charts with the help of our friend Larry Williams, the legendary technician and market historian who's been in the game since I was a zit-faced, clear-sill-starved teenager. Larry's written more than a dozen books. He's created a host of his own proprietary indicators, all of which you can find on his website, IReallyTrade.com, and that are used by everybody on TV constantly. He's got an incredible track record, especially when it comes to calling bottoms at moments where everybody else has given up. Remember in April 2020 when everyone was terrified that COVID would destroy the economy and we might be headed for a second Great Depression, William said, bye. He said business would start rebounding within weeks and the market would bounce with it. And that was one of the greatest calls ever. Right now, Larry, despite all the gloom around him, really likes what he sees. Specifically, he's watching the behavior of different types of market participants, and the behavior looks bullish. Every week, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission releases data on the net holdings of three different types of investors. They divide them into the public, large traders and fund managers, and finally, commercial hedgers, meaning the companies that are actually involved in a given industry, meaning buying the futures because it's part of their business model. 
Okay. When it comes to these three groups, Williams has told us that he thinks the latter group, commercial hedgers, tend to have the best understanding of the particular sector because they're the only ones involved who are doing more than just gambling. That doesn't mean the commercial hedgers are always right, but they've got an edge that the public lacks, whether they're talking professional money managers or regular people. Now, when it comes to the stock futures, commercial hedgers are mainly banks, mutual funds, and even governments that may be in the process of buying or selling stocks. Williams has done extensive research here, and when these guys get very bullish in their positioning, even though the charts may look bad, it's often a great buying opportunity. Thanks to the CFTC's weekly commitments of traders report or COT report, we know what each of these three groups is doing. Especially in important bottoms, Williams points out that the commercial hedgers tend to be bullish, while the large speculators like money managers and, of course, the public tend to be bearish. So now here we go. I want you to take a look. This is pretty amazing stuff at the weekly chart of the Dow Jones Industrial Average Futures from late 2009 through 2014. That red line at the bottom shows the net position of commercial hedgers, the ones that Larry says are smart, smarter than the other guys. As you can see, near important bottoms, they typically step up their buying. Step up, step up, step up, step up. If you move forward and look at the period from 2015 through mid-2019, exact same story. When the going gets tough, the commercial hedgers go along. Step up, step up, step up. Step up, step up. Finally, watching the Dow futures from mid-2018 through today. So now we're talking current day. The pattern continues. More importantly, it happened again over the last few months. The commercial hedgers have gotten increasingly bullish as sentiment's gotten more negative. According to Williams, this is an incredibly encouraging sign. Look at this. Here's the decline, okay, that we're all so crazed about, right? Look at this. Look at that. Come on, look at how right they've been. They're right over and over and over again. Just as important, you notice the commercial hedgers and money managers, the large speculators, have been going in the opposite direction of late. While the former get more bullish, the latter have gotten more bearish, shorting the futures aggressively. That matters because historically, when the commercials and the hedge funds are going in opposite directions, you're much better off betting with, yes, the commercials. Take a look at the weekly action in the Dow futures from 2014 through 2016. The red line on the bottom shows the net position of commercial hedgers, while the blue line shows large speculators. All right, look at this. We had a double bottom in 2015-16, which many people were uh, really, I think, just on the fence about. Or, or betting against. And look at eight slows. The commercials were going increasingly long, while the large speculators, blue, were giving up, going increasingly short. It's happening again. How about more recently from late? This is um, th- this now we're looking at uh, from late 2019. This is through actual 19, current, right now. Buying, selling, shorting, actually. These are shorting. Look, in the spring of 2020, when COVID first hit and the market collapsed, it was the commercial hedgers who bought aggressively right after the bottom, while the large speculators got more bearish. More importantly, when you check out the recent positioning, the commercials just keep upping their net long position, while the large speculators get more and more bearish. So this is that current day. This is a zoom in. Bullish, bullish, bearish, bearish. Believe me, I can understand why the large speculators have totally given up on the stock market. It's absolutely infuriating. But Larry's right. Markets bottom when the hedge funds throw in the towel and the public throws in the towel. And based on the history, he suspects that's exactly what's happening now. In fact, when you look at all the data from uh, late 2012 to today, he points out the commercial hedgers are now buying stocks at some of the highest levels ever seen. 
Meanwhile, the large speculators in the public are more bearish than any time that he can call. These large speculators right here, I can't believe how, could they be all right? These are the people we hear from all the day, by the way. That's who you're listening to. That's who you're listening to. Who's right? If history is any guide, and I think it's the best one we have, then Williams says this kind of pattern is very bullish for stock prices. The last time we spoke to him about the broader averages in late May, he predicted that after some choppy trading, the market would have a strong rally through late August. Right now, what he's seeing in the futures confirms this thesis. He likes what he sees. All we can do is tell me, this is it, Jim. I like it. This is exactly what you expect to see when the bottoms are put in and stocks are ready to rebound. Here's the bottom line. Despite what you heard all day on TV, right now, commercial hedgers have gone very bullish, while the hedge fund complex and also the individuals have gotten very bearish. And the charts, as interpreted by Larry Williams, suggests that you want to bet with the reds, not with the blues. As he sees it, you don't have to be smart to know the future. You just have to know what the smart money's doing. I wouldn't go that, way, that far myself, but given Larry's incredible track record, this is, believe it or not, in a tough, tough day. Super encouraging. Steven in Rhode Island. Steven. Hey now, Jimmy Chill. Yo. Thanks for taking my call, Jim. You I'm betcha. calling you about Constellation Brands. Personally, I'm very bullish on the stock, and I love the company. Despite posting pretty solid earnings and guidance, the stock fell almost 4.5% on the release date. I'd love to hear your opinion. What will drive the company's growth for the remainder of the year? And does the canopy deal worry you at all? Okay, so here's the deal. That actually, um, the stock exceeded where it was after the big decline when it reported and then gave back that. It's flat with the, where it was when the company reported. That's very, very positive. The Sands deal gives an opportunity to be able for a company to be able to buy back more stock without enriching the Sands position itself. And also, by the way, they were paying the Sands a lot of money. And yes, an acquirer can come in much more easily. Uh, Constellation's great. Go against Sam. I mean, we've been getting sand the whole time, Boston Beer, and in favor of Constellation, which for people who don't know it is Modelo, Corona, and Pacifico. Commercial headers have turned very bullish here. That's red. These are the people you should bet with, okay? The blues say they're wrong. Red says they're right. So it's going to go like that. Red has been right. Blue has been wrong. That's what you need to know about this chart. Much more Mad Money Head, including my exclusive with Miso Robotics. How is this private player crafting the future of tech-filled restaurants? I'm talking to CEO. And if you're terminating his deal to buy Twitter, what obstacles could Elon Musk have in front of him? I think I've got some insight others don't. And all your calls, rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. At a time when nearly every business seems worried about higher labor costs, companies are finding increasingly creative ways to keep those costs down. I know from personal experience that the restaurants in particular have it rough right now in terms of wage inflation, but they also have the benefit of new technology. I'm talking about Miso Robotics, a privately held company that you may recognize as the maker of Chippy, the robot that Chipotle has been testing to make its chips. Chippy's actually an adapted version of Flippy, their automated frying machine. Ever since the Chipotle deal was announced back in March, we've heard Miso Robotics is partnering up with a series of fast casual chains like Panera Bread and Jack in the Box. That adds to an increasingly impressive roster of customers that are using or testing Miso's robots like White Castle, Buffalo Wild Wings. 
While a lot of this is still early stage, the company is raising money. This company hasn't had much trouble doing so in the private markets, making it a real rarity right now. So you know that the public markets are frozen. I think this could be the future of the restaurant industry. So don't take a let's just take a close look at this. And I've got some insights from my own restaurant business to see whether I should have been using Mesa Robotics with Mike Bell. Mr. Bell, welcome to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you having me. Okay, so, Mike, in my former restaurant days, the thing that cost me the most was someone to make chips. I mean, literally, that's a body that costs a lot, and it's a dedicated technique that is, frankly, replicable by more by a machine than a person. How did you come up with this, and is it just taking, I'd say, taking the industry by storm? Yeah, the way we came up with it, Jim, when you look back at the house, there's just a ton of opportunity for automation. There's so many tasks that are repetitive, mundane, and frankly, most humans don't, 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 don't like to perform them. So for us, it's a story of progression. We look at back of house and kind of see what are the biggest problems that are easiest to solve and just kind of progress from there. Well, it seems that you've got that kind of robots as a service uh, process where you, you basically you get a subscription and it looks like that subscription. People may not realize it. Say it comes to forty five thousand for a fry cook. That is actually about twenty five thousand under what a human would cost without even getting into benefits. How are you pricing that? And are you having any resistance for that pricing? No, we've done a good job of taking all the friction out of the buying process in terms of price. So most restaurants have a fry station that's pre-existing, okay? So they've already invested the capital in having that fry station. And what we do is we install a robotic fry, uh, you know, a robotic arm in the fry station essentially overnight over this pre-existing equipment. And what we do is we we provide it as a subscription service for about $3,000 a month, depending on the configuration. Now, this is priced relatively similarly and somewhat under the cost, the equivalent cost of labor to kind of run that machine but frankly, uh, fewer hours during the month. So we come in and we're able for restaurants to show them a positive ROI in month one, and it doesn't require a large capital outlay for them to adopt this technology. So yeah, you're right, Jim, we're facing a lot of demand. Now, what are the uh, replicable uh, things that a robot can do? Because on, on your site, you've got some terrific ones. Obviously, there's lots of different frying things, but to me, it seemed like, well, you could ultimately do pretty much almost every part of the back. Yeah, it's a, it's a careful balance, okay? So we have four products. There's Flippy, Flippy Lite, uh, which is also called Chippy. We have a, a drink solution. It's an automated drink dispenser. And then we have an, an IoT product, uh, Internet of Things product called CookRite. Now, we're, we get the question all the time, Jim. Okay, can you help us automate, you know, XYZ, fill in the blank, you know, make guacamole, scoop ice cream, make a malt, do dishes. The engineering answer to that question always is yes. Of course we can do that. But the business person answer is often different because the question is, can we do that and, and, and price it in such a way that it, that it re- represents a positive ROI for our customers? And that's not always yes. So we're super careful about what products we take on because what we've got to do is not just demonstrate that, hey, the robot can do the thing that the human can do, but can the robot do the thing that the human can do at a price that's a significant win, an immediate win for our customers. And that we're super careful about. Well, I thought it was important when Chipotle was on first told me about this. They made it very clear. These are not desirable jobs. They are not the jobs that people want, which made me think that there are so many hundreds of thousands of restaurants that you yourself, your company could actually play a deflationary role in this economy. Yeah, for sure. And if you think about it, Jim, like right now, the restaurant industry is we're sitting here talking. There may be a quarter of a million locations right now as we're talking 
where this human beings are cooking essentially the same kind of food in the same kind of way. So it's kind of the world's largest distributed factory base, if you will. Okay. And the restaurant industry is kind of lagging a lot of other industries in terms of adopting automation and adopting these kind of cost cutting technologies. So we're at the four, we're early days. We're at the forefront of fundamentally changing how food is cooked in America and frankly, the rest of the world. And it's not a matter of taking over all the functions. We look at it and we think, okay, there are some tasks that humans are naturally better at. For example, you know, interacting and working with other humans. But there are tasks like the fry station. Imagine if there's four different fryers, two baskets each. A human being is just not intrinsically very good at managing eight baskets at once, each one with a short cook cycle. We look at that as just a natural use of technology and automation in the restaurant industry. And so we're off the races automating <laughs> Starting with starting with the fry station, moving on from there. One last thing that I think that weren't weren't talked about in your videos, but I think is true from someone who's owned restaurants. These are not safe jobs necessarily. These are dangerous jobs. Yeah. People get burned constantly. That's the end of this with a miso robotic. Yeah, we, exactly. We, when we install Flippy Two, for example, in a restaurant, there's this really clear barrier shield that separates the robot area from the human area. And the robot just takes over all that oily, hot, you know, as you said, sometimes dangerous job. When you talk to the restaurant workers after we install Flippy, you know, they're quick to say, don't ever try to get this thing. This is, you know, we, we love it. You have to keep it here forever. Uh, it, it makes the operation quieter, smoother, faster, and absolutely safer. Well, look, I'm thrilled that you're on the show. Your product is going to be a godsend uh, to both people who work in the restaurant, because no one really wants those jobs, but also for the bottom line. And it's just uh, terrific to see what you've done. Mike Bell, CEO of Miso Robotics. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Jim. Okay, guys, private product. You've got to go to their website. You can see how many things they can automate. We touched on a fraction of them. But every one of the jobs that they're replacing are not as desirable as other jobs. And I think you have to understand that the ROI and the dislike of these jobs is just made for Miso Robotics. Man, money's back in for the break. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. It's right for us. the scene. Blade is out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski. Time for the lightning round. Let's go to Jeff in Ohio. Jeff. Booyah, Jim, and thanks for taking my call. Of course. Previously, you highlighted Bath & Body Works as a top pick, which probably indicated a potential uh, buy opportunity. But with the recent decline in the retail sector, and specifically the decline in the Bath & Body stock, do you currently grade Bath & Body as a buy? Well, remember, I did, say, or, or, I did say if it was in the mall, it's going to have trouble. And that was from the, uh, the horrible battle we had with uh, American Eagle Outfitters. So if it's in the mall, I still can't approve it because it turns out that the yield does not, which is 2.9, does not uh, enable this, does not stop the stock from going down. Let's go to Allen in Florida. Allen. Jimmy Chill, booyah to you. Booyah. I want to ask you about 23andMe. They've got a massive human genome database, a great partnership with Glasgow where Glasgow pays for development. They get a royalty. A CEO that's just highly connected, and I think about 40 more drugs in the pipeline. What do you think about them? I am shocked that this stock's at two. I am just shocked. I mean, Glaxo should just close their eyes and buy them. 
Uh, that said, I mean, the, you know, this is a company that came public in that era where I told you you have to avoid every single one of them. At two bucks, I think that the risk is priced in Charles in North Carolina. Charles. Booyah. 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 North Carolina, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Ah, uh, thrilled. What's going on? Uh, I have a, an IRA position in Scott's Miracle Grow that I'm down significantly. Right. Obviously, this is a retirement account, and Ooh. I've considered buying more at this price. No, let's hold off buying more. Remember, this is a this is a company that's related. That they it was a housing and lawn play that got turned into a pot play, and anything that's cannabis related is no go in my book. Ken in California, Ken. James, it's a true honor, buddy. I'm glad you're here. Um, we got a little uh, group here. We call ourselves uh, the New Fangled. We're looking for five-year five-baggers. Wondering what you think of A10 Networks. Uh, not proprietary enough, too much like other companies. Let's stay away from that. That is not the right horse for your club to bet on. Let's go to Jack in Georgia. Jack. Booyah, Jim. This is Jack from Augusta, Georgia. Good to have Thank you. you. Thank you for calling my, taking my call. I have been watching your show for the past 15 years. Okay. My question is about a Canadian energy transportation company called Pampina Pipeline. The symbol is... Yeah, well, I don't know why that stock's as low as it is. I think that's a terrific investment. You get a good yield, too. I would be a buyer of that. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, Kramer tackles the market's Monday blues. Next... Today, I heard that Elon Musk can simply get away with breaking his deal to buy Twitter. Anyone who's making that argument clearly doesn't know how corporate law works in the United States of America. And when I say the United States, I mean Delaware, because that's the best place for businesses to incorporate. To break this deal, Musk is going to have to go up against Delaware judges, and that isn't easy. These are experts. They are. I've met a bunch of them. They're brilliant. They take their job seriously, and their job is to enforce contracts. You gotta understand, judges in Delaware cherish their status, which is why they're not just gonna let Elon Musk contract to buy Twitter go unenforced. Few deals are more enforceable than this one. There are very few outs in this kind of contract, and even the ones it has don't really come into play in this situation, because Musk initially stipulated he was fine with the major issues he's now complaining about fake accounts. That's why tonight, in a letter to Musk, Twitter says efforts to terminate the deal are, and I quote, invalid and wrongful, and I agree with them. Don't get me wrong. If I were Elon Musk, I'd want out, too. Twitter's not worth what he's agreed to pay for it earlier this year. Not necessarily, though, because of any deceit on the part of Twitter, but because the sector's cratered since Musk agreed to buy Twitter. But when you acquire a company, you're supposed to do your due diligence beforehand. And it doesn't matter to Delaware Chancery if the cohort's been crushed in the interim at all. If internet value soared since the deal, would Twitter want to break the contract? Sure, but that's against the law to it. doesn't happen. Now, I know that Musk and his team did a deep dive of Twitter's team on the bogus accounts issue, and Musk personally told Twitter he was satisfied with what he saw. The idea that Twitter somehow held anything back is ludicrous. Twitter wants to sell at Musk's price. Why would they hide anything? That would give Musk it out. Not going to happen. 
Twitter's board must do everything in its power to make this deal happen because it's a great deal for shareholders. And if it doesn't go through, those shareholders are going to come after the board, both individually and the board. In the end, I don't know what price Musk will have to pay for this thing. But when I look at similar cases that have been brought in Delaware, the buyer almost always has to go through with the deal. Unless there's an out-and-out fraud situation, there's simply not that case here. Uh, So what does Musk have? He has two options. He can either litigate over a long period of time and then have to buy a vastly depleted Twitter, or he can negotiate to buy Twitter now at a lower price that seems fair to both sides. And that's what I think is going to happen. I say let Musk figure this out, though. Sure, Twitter's an advertising platform like the others, but I never thought a Musk-led Twitter would look like the other social media companies. He's too brilliant for that. If he really just expected to be one more boring, staid, not that profitable company, he never would have made the deal to begin with. It's either that or it was never really about the money. It was a prestige thing. But if that's the case, he, he had still he has no recent bail. Of course, if Musk didn't have anything special planned for Twitter, then buying it was a stupid, rash decision. But that's a problem every acquirer faces. If he made his bid right before a big social media rally, he'd look like a genius. Instead, we got a big decline, and the deal looks foolish. Hence why the court has to enforce the law, lest the state of Delaware seem arbitrary and capricious, and therefore it won't attract businesses to incorporate there. So along, here's what you have to do. you got to get together with Twitter right now. Come up with a better price. Otherwise, I think a judge will end up forcing you to buy something really worth a lot less than it is now down the road and possibly at a full price. Better just take the hit up front and go buy it. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.